Father, we thank you for the demonstrations of your goodness to us, how you guide and direct us, you lead us, you bless us, Father, with people who serve with us. And thank you for today, just the updates we've had from cross trainers and with Deanna's ministry among us. God, we are a blessed people, and we recognize your goodness in all these things. As we come to your word now, I pray that by your spirit you would teach us. May we hear from you what we need to hear this morning, not what is, is kind of from me, God, but what comes from you. And so just would you bless us in these things as we turn to your word together. Amen. You may be seated. We're coming back into 2 Kings today. If you want to turn there, 2 Kings chapter 2 in your Bibles, we'll have some of the scriptures up on the screens for you, studying in the uh, life of Elijah and Elisha. And as we have studied these couple of different individuals, sort of periodically through the summer, I trust that you have been blessed as we think about what God has done through these men. In my study in the past couple of weeks uh, for passages today, I kept coming across some quotes from a book by a man by the name of F.W. Krumacher. I'm not sure how you say his name, really. He's a German pastor. And I, you know, I, I read his quotes a few times. I think that sounds like an excellent book. And then I was looking at my bookshelf and realized I had the book. <laughs> it's kind of like, wow, I, don't, I, I inherited a bunch of books from a, an uncle of mine that was a pastor. And I have to admit, I probably haven't got through all of them. I think this was one of them. And when I looked at this book, I uh, turned up to the fly leaf at the beginning because I was wondering how old of a book it was. And uh, in there, it had this little wording. It says, this edition was reprinted by the photo offset process from the Religious Tract Society edition of 1838. Oh, wow. This, you know, so I looked up Krumacher and found out that he was a man who lived that latter part of the 1800s. And as I was reading this, and the, the guys that were quoting him are recent authors and writers and things like that, and uh, it just amazed me, and I just want to share this paragraph, parts of what we'll be studying today. He made this comment. He says, the times in which we live have, on more accounts than one, a serious aspect. That period of refining which awaits the church appears to be near at hand. 185 years ago. He's saying there's a refining that's coming for the church. There is a serious aspect to life. Things were changing. But true disciples stand upon a rock in the midst of the ways. And that rock consists of the grace, love, truth, power, and faithfulness of their great king. May the reflections we are about to enter upon serve to strengthen us in the belief of this. I just found that strangely comforting to know that in the cycle of life, there are serious aspects that the church will always be facing. You know, almost 200 years ago, this author was looking at his culture, looking at what was happening around him and saying, the church is going to be refined in the coming days. Last week, Paul Carter was here. He talked about us being a, you know, a community of contrast, to stand apart because there is a gap that's been widening and we need to be that community of contrast because there are serious aspects of our culture that we need to address and that we need to stand up in in the midst of our culture. 
And parts of why we've been following the story of Elijah and Elisha is because they were transitioning in prophetic leadership in the times of Israel. There were serious aspects of the life of Israel that was being faced, and they are recorded for us here in the, in the pages of Scripture for us. You know, they were facing an incredible downward spiral, especially in the life of Israel, the northern ten tribes that Elijah and Elisha were primarily interested in and ministering to. This downward spiral away from the faith of Abraham and Moses and, and David. You know, they were abandoning so much of what God had professed and given to them as covenant. The law that they were to be following so that they would understand the grace of God and be brought to him in ways that would demonstrate power and vitality and that they would be a community of contrast. It's really what Israel was meant to be. Israel was meant to be this community of contrast that the world would know who God is. And so into the midst of this, Elijah and then Elisha are brought on board. And so Elijah has a powerful ministry among the people. And then last time when we were here, Derek was talking about this transition that was taking place. And when we were last with Elisha, he had just witnessed Elijah's being taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. You know, in a whirlwind that had come. And he was just transported from this world into the very presence of God. He was taken up. This transition of leadership that he was there. Wouldn't that be an incredible way for pastoral changes? <laughs> just one Sunday, just whoosh. I mean, I'd like to be on this end of it. Man, Lord, just take me. You know, let me be there in your presence and let you guys pick up the pieces from that. <laughs> no thanks. Our process is grueling enough, right, without that. But that's what's happening. You know, this moment, Elijah, who was the mainstay, who was the prophet, has been taken away and the mantle's been passed to Elisha. That whole idea of the passing of the mantle. Elijah literally left his cloak, the mantle that he had worn, this sign of his prophetic leadership, and had handed it off to Elisha. And when he took it, the first thing he did, and we looked at this last time, was he struck those waters of the Jordan, they parted, and he crossed over the Jordan. And they recognize there's a change taking place. And they have Elisha now. Do you remember that 50 of the, of the school of the prophets that were in Jericho, they got together with Elisha and said, hey, let us go look for Elijah. You know, let's go look for his body. So that sense, Elisha kept saying, don't bother. Don't bother. Like, he's gone. Finally, he relented. He said, okay, go look. And they went and they looked and they scoured for three days but couldn't find him. I mean, they were just looking like, what if God's just kind of dropped him somewhere else? We need to go help him out. Or what if he died and his body's just there? Let's go confirm what's taken place. But they couldn't find him. So they come back and here's Elisha with the cloak, with the mantle. They'd seen him perform this miracle. But everybody's wondering what's next. You know, what's next? Here's the next leader. <laughs> What's going to happen now? Can we trust him? Can we put our hope and our faith and can we follow him? I mean, Elijah and Elisha were very different people. Elijah, we didn't follow all of his story, but if you followed enough of it, you recognize Elijah was, a, in a sense, a very political individual. 
a lot of his time was spent in the face of King Ahab. Ahab and he were, in a sense, enemies. Because it was every time Elijah got in front of Ahab, he was speaking against him. And the things that he was leading Israel into. And he stood against his wife Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. He was the one through whom no rain fell upon the land for three years. Elijah was this incredibly big personality. And also in that big personality were the big swings in his moods. Remember, Jesse walked us through that time that he was so depressed and despairing. He wanted to die. He thought he was alone. And God came and ministered to him. And out of that, Elisha begins to be brought on board. Whereas Elisha, as, and we're not going to read much of his story, Elisha's a very different man. Elisha was this farmer. He was out plowing. He was a wealthy individual. The, the, crowd, the oxen that he had, this team of 24, you know, like there was that, and he gave all of that up. One author has described Elisha as God's velvet-covered brick. <laughs> what a definition, eh? A velvet-covered brick. Why? Because there was a softness to him, but there was also a hardness, right? He was able to speak into issues, but he was among the people. He was with the people and he was softer spoken. And he's taking over from Elijah very different people in their backgrounds, in their personality. And also in the times that they were serving in. You know, Israel was going, <laughs> excuse me, going through some big changes. There were big changes that were happening culturally. And, and the Israel that Elijah was speaking against and into was, was calling for all this change. It is changing. Some of it is still this downward spiral. But there is a returning that's taking place. All of this is just to remind you, you know, the announcement today. We have a man we're going to present to you. If, if you aren't aware of this already, he will be a very different individual than our former pastor. <laughs> Who isn't? <laughs> right? But that's going to be one of the beautiful things. That we'll be able to appreciate differences. And as you get to know him, which is going to be unfolded in the next couple of weeks, you know, we're just trusting that God knows us. And he knows our needs. And he knows what's happening in the culture around us. And he's going to bring all of these things together. We've been praying and we're crying out to him. In the same way that Elisha's stepping into some things here that he needs to be prepared for and his ministry needs to get established. And today we're just going to look at a couple of stories at these beginning moments of Elisha and recognize how God is establishing his prophetic ministry, establishing him in the work that he's going to do, but also establishing him in the hearts of the people that are going to grow to love and to follow him. So at the end of chapter 2 of 2 Kings, just two very short accounts. We'll spend some time there. And then chapter 3, I really just want to highlight, well, just a few verses out of that. I'm sure I'm going to run out of time as I talk on too much. But this is what we're going to do today. And just in the midst of this is just to think about what are the events and what is the ministry that's being defined through Elisha that he's going to have. And just kind of to get this out in your head, there's three things that I think we're going to see in his ministry. Ultimately, in a sense, the ministry that we look forward to among us as well. It doesn't change. These are things God is going to accomplish. So we're going to see, first of all, that God has a restorative ministry through Elisha. That God reaches out to his people. He's calling them back. 
that he is drawing them into his presence. And there's always this open invitation. God looks to restore his people. Even though they've fallen away, even in some ways they are blatantly opposed to the things that he has called them to be. God still through his servants comes and says, come back. There is room for you to be with me. So there's a restorative ministry. There's also a corrective ministry. Sometimes error and mistakes need to be pointed out. And the Lord needs to be heard in the midst of it. Israel is in bad shape. And there is some pretty hard correction that's going to need to take place. And he's also going to have a directive ministry. The sense of a directive ministry that he's going to be the voice of God guiding and directing and giving them hope and, and helping them in the midst of all that's going around them. That directive ministry is a redemptive, redemptive kind of ministry as well that the Lord needs to be heard and needs to lead them. So we're just going to look at these three little accounts that take place right at the beginning of Elisha's ministry. After he's come through the waters of Jordan, Elijah is no more on the scene. Here's kind of the first things that start to take place. So 2 Kings 2, 19 to 22, the sense of a restorative ministry. Follow along as I read this. It says there that the people of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said. Put salt in it. And they brought it to him. And then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the waters remain pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. You know, in a sense, a, an incredible thing takes place in this almost nondescript way. They come to Elisha. The city being talked about here is Jericho. There's an interesting pattern in Elisha that's taking place. If you remember with Elijah, that they, they traveled from Samaria and came to Bethel, Jericho, crossed the Jordan, and then Elijah was taken up. Elisha's retracing those steps. He comes back from the wilderness through the Jordan, has come back to Jericho. Jericho is also that first place across the Jordan that Joshua, years before, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, remember? Right? The walls came tumbling down. This is the first place. It's the place where God started new things. And as he comes across the uh, river, he comes back to Jericho, and he's spending a bit of time there, it would appear. And as he's there, part of what happened after Joshua and the walls all fell, Joshua made a prophecy and declaration that it would be a great peril that the walls of that city would be, ever be raised again. And there was a sense of that it would never be a productive place. That God's, you know, curse was upon it in that sense. And so what is happening is, in Second, well, in First Kings, you read of King Heels, Hiles, uh, who rebuilt the walls of Jericho. And it says there that two of his sons perished during that time because of the rebuilding of Jericho. There was danger. There was peril, as Joshua talked about it. And we're also discovering here that the well, the water, never was restored. That the water was bad, the land is unproductive. And so there is this sense that the blessing of God has been removed from this place. And the people come to Elisha. 
those that are dwelling in the city, and they are beginning to see that here is the next prophet. And so they have this prophet among them, and they come to Elisha, and they say, Lord, you see what's happened here. Because of this water, because of the water being bad, our land is unproductive. And they explain that to him, of course, hoping and realizing that perhaps Elisha could do something as the new representative of God in the land. Would he be able to lift this this curse from Joshua or whatever has taken place? And so they come. And so Elisha says, very simple instructions. Bring me a new bowl, fill it with salt, and they're obedient to that. They go and they do what Elisha tells them to do. As strange as that may have seemed to them, because if you were in that situation and you have a spring outside the city gates that is providing water, bubbling up from the ground and running into probably a pool of some kind and a river, and it's bad, you just think, I'm not sure how salt's going to help us out here, Elisha, but we'll do what you say. And there's always a bit of a test when, when there is this sense of restoration taking place. Will you be obedient to what God's calling? So they, they do all that he asks. And so he goes out to the spring and he throws the salt in the spring. How ridiculous. <laughs> right? how, how will water ever be healed by putting a bowl? I don't know. I don't care how much salt you put into that. Right? It's a spring. There's underground caverns of water that are bubbling up. You're, you've got to deal with what's going on underground. Something's gone wrong. But he goes and he puts the salt in the water. And of course the point is this. This is what the Lord says. This was Elijah's words. This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. So Elisha's saying, yeah, don't look at me. (laughs) Forget really about the salt. The Lord has healed these waters. Yeah, he's used this symbol of salt. He's used this symbol of your obedience. But it's the Lord who has healed the waters. And they became pure. And they're still pure to this day that was being written here. And I'm not sure. I'd have to go to Jericho and see. They've dug up the sites. I, you know, I, I was going to do that at one point this week and never got around to it. <laughs> be interested to see if there's still a pure spring that's somewhere in that area. Right? God has healed the water. This sense of restoration. The sense of the people came back to the one that they recognized was now the spokesman of the Lord for them. Do you see how this is solidifying Elisha's place among them? They're saying, Elisha, we're coming to you as the one who hears from the Lord. We're coming to you as the one who has his voice and is his voice to us. And Elisha goes to the Lord and is obedient to him. And that's where healing is found. Healing is always found in the word of the Lord, fitly spoken by his servant. It's the power of a leadership to be brought in a place of restoration through the word of God. You know, this will be the continuing part of Elisha's ministry to these people of Israel, to bring restoration to them, to individuals, but also calling the nation back to the Lord who is the healer to the one who is able to to bring into their lives this restoring grace that they long for and that they need. 
to call them back from the idol worship that they have fallen into and to the false religions that are there and to restore them as a people of God. Not a ministry we always need. We need restoration. We need that sense that God is healing us and moving us forward. The pattern is the same for us today. And then we come to a different kind of story. The last few verses of this chapter, uh, it's a corrective kind of ministry. And as I read this, we'll spend a little bit of time here because it's one of those passages. Last week when Paul Carter was here, he kind of threw out a statement, said, you know, preaching isn't rocket science. And the preachers in the room probably were saying, well, thanks, Paul. <laughs> right? And you remember what he said? He said, basically, you read the text, you explain the text, and you apply the text. And I read this text this week, and I thought, yeah, this needs some help. <laughs> I need some help in figuring this out. So let's read it together and then see what you think. If you haven't read it in a while, just you'll catch on what's going on here. So from there, from Jericho, it was a short journey up to Bethel. And so Elisha's following this path, getting back up to Samaria. And he went up to Bethel. And as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head, old baldy, is what some of them say. And Elisha turns around, he looks at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there returned to Samaria. Ah, oh, that's end of the lesson. <laughs> right? Don't mess around with bald leaders. Right, I can appreciate that message. Is that what you're getting out of this? <laughs> Whoa, what is that about? Walter Kaiser, a great Old Testament writer and theologian, he says this about this text. Many read this text as a mild personal offense by some innocent little children that was turned into a federal case by a crotchety old prophet as short on hair as he was on humor. Right? Like, whoa, a bit of an overreaction, wasn't it, Elisha? Like, what was going on here? And then he says, And such unfavorable assessments of this incident have brought more criticism of the Bible than almost any other narrative. Yeah, people look at this and say, Yeah, there's your God. Like, what a fickle God. What's going on? This God of, you know, genocide and murder and, you know, this cruelty to little children. Is this the God that we worship and serve? Kaiser goes on and says this. It's a false reconstruction of the event, though. It's really just a caricature of the real story. And so there's a little more that needs to be brought out of this story. Because it's there for our good, right? To understand something of Elisha. Well, what was going on here? Why is, why is this in here? So just some details that I think help us catch what's really happening here. The first is geography. To understand a Bible story, sometimes you have to know the geography, what's going on. This story takes place next to Bethel, close to Jericho but a very different city, especially at this time in the life of Israel. Bethel has a very honorable beginning. Bethel, in fact, means the house of God. Abraham, Jacob, 
use the term Bethel. It's places where they met God. And they set up altars there. And God was worshipped. It was the house of God where he was resident. But at this point in time, through Jeroboam, the king, and through Ahab, who kept that process going, you remember Ahab was more desperately wicked than any of the other kings, and Baal worship was rampant. Bethel was one of those cities. Jeroboam founded two places of worship. He founded Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. And as he founded these kingdoms, they were places of worship because he was worried that they needed to remove worship from Jerusalem. A bit of history. Remember the ten kingdoms to the north and two kingdoms to the south. They divided the nation of Israel. And there's almost these two nations now, Israel and Judah, and they were at war and animosity between them. And during this time, Jeroboam said, we need a place of worship. We need our own place of worship. It's no good to go down to Jerusalem. And so he set up these worship centers for the northern kingdom, Dan in the north, Bethel in the south. And this worship was not the worship of Jehovah God. This worship was a rebellious, it was a covenant-breaking worship. It was idolatrous worship. Jeroboam brought in golden calves at these sites, reminiscent of the golden calves back during the exodus that they brought out of Egypt. Ahab added the Baal worship to this whole time. There was these idols there. They had non-Aaronic priests set up. You know, Moses and Aaron, and Aaron was of the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. He said, no, we will set up our own priests, and we'll change the time of the festivals, and Baal worship is going to reign supreme. This is Bethel during the time of Elisha. It's a rebellious city. One writer put it somewhat crassly. He said, Bethel became basically one big uplifted middle finger to everything Moses had commanded. That give you the sense of what was going on? This was a place of, of evil, of a belligerent people, you know, purposely saying, we are against the covenant that God has given to us. Not just out of step, but intentionally, proudly against the law given by Jehovah for Israel. It was not a welcome city for Elisha. The false priests would stand against him. The false priests were probably nervous now that Elijah was off the scene and Elisha was here. and They're hearing these rumors that Elisha is kind of taking the mantle up and he's the next one that they have to deal with him. And as he approaches the city, it becomes made known. And I imagine within that town that the word got out that Elisha was coming and that priestly uh, cohort rounded up the, the youth of the city and sent them outside to meet and approach Elisha as he came. So that's the next detail you have to think about. Who are these boys that come out of the town? It's a problematic expression in Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew you know, expert. I rely on commentators and things. But as you look through various English translations, you'll see a variety of kind of different ways they describe these boys. Some say little children, some are young boys, some are young men. That's a phrase that has a variety of different descriptions. Again, Walter Kaiser, his argument is that this expression should actually be translated young men, 
because these same words are used of Isaac, who was in his 20s, Joseph, who was 17, and there's an army of men in 1 Kings 20 that have this same description of them. So Kaiser says that the ages of these boys is anywhere from 12 to 30 years old. All right, and this is the young boys. This is the crowd that comes out to meet Elisha. And recognize as well, when the bears come, how many boys are mauled? 42. This isn't a small gathering, right? This isn't just a few kids coming out and, oh, hey, Baldy. You know, this is a crowd. This is more like a swarming, right? This makes you uneasy to be in the midst of this. Even if these kids are all 12 years old, kind of the bottom of the description, you get 42 12-year-olds, I get nervous, <laughs> right? If you got them all together, I got thinking of cross trainers. If, if the kids that were all here at cross trainers one day wanted to take over, they probably could have, <laughs> right? Just they had the sheer numbers. That's what was happening. Elisha, as he's approaching the town, this swarthy mob comes out to meet him. And they're jeering him, right? What they're yelling at him has, has impact. It's a swarming. They are definitely trying to bring grief into his life at this moment. Motivated by the, the false religion that is contained inside the city. And so then you have to ask, what's with the taunt? <laughs> you know what, they're, they're jeering. Go on up, bald head. Well, come on, Elisha, suck it up. <laughs> you can't take that. But what's really happening here? Go on up, and some, again, some translations would say, you know, uh, you know leave this place or uh, disappear. It's literally, it, it really is that idea of go on up. It's fly away. Well, it's in reference to what's just happened with Elijah. What happened to Elijah? Elijah flew away. Elijah was taken on up. Remember Derek talked about death at this point, was always talked about as going down. But Elijah was taken up. He was drawn up into heaven, a remarkable event that took place. And as they're coming, part of their jeer is, hey, why don't you be like Elijah and go on up too? You know, get out of here. In other words, you are not welcome here. And it would be better if you just disappeared, if you just flew away. It's just this great disrespect to a remarkable work of God. There's a disbelief. There's a slander to God in the midst of this. The idea, do you really believe that's what happened? You know, if you believe that, well, you just go the same way. And then bald head, <laughs> baldy. It's, it's a statement. In our day and age, you know, being bald has, has become more of a handsome statement of your virility, right? You know, those that are in the room, like me, a little more, I mean, movie stars, athletes, take it all off, right? Because it's a symbol of strength. Yeah, not in this day and age. Right? In this day and age, baldness, especially when you think about Elisha, we're not sure how old Elisha was here. He's probably close to 30, 
depends how young he was when he was first called. There's about 18 years he's with Elijah. You know, so is he in the 30 range? To be bald at 30 in that day and age was really more associated with sickness. Leprosy was a leading cause of baldness in that day. Right? So as they're, as they're making reference to his baldness, they're really saying, you weak old thing. You know, it's a comment about who he is. And it's really a comment about all that he stands for as the prophet of God. So here you have a mob, this swarming that's taking place. They're gathering around him and saying, yeah, you're really the prophet of God, you sick old man. And Elisha turns and looks at them. Here's how he responds. He turns and he looks at them and he calls down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Now again, when we hear the word curse, what pops into your mind? Probably a multitude of movies and entertainment and all that. We think of witchcraft, we think of black magic, all of that. We think of somebody, you know, declaring that something bad and wicked is going to happen to somebody. There's a curse that's been placed on them. In the context of this passage, though, Elisha calling down a curse is really cursing has more to do with the removal of blessing. Cursing is the opposite of blessing. When the children of Israel were coming into the land, they stood on the two mountains and blessings and cursings were called out. The blessings were what God would do as they were faithful to the covenant. The curses of God were, if they fell away from the covenant and his hand of blessing is removed, here's what you could expect to take place. So Elisha, as he calls down a curse on, on them, it's really the emphasis on the absence or the reversal or the removal of a blessed state, right? It's removing and saying, you have not God's protection, his profession, his blessing in your life. You know, it's a very simple principle. Without God's blessed salvation and protection, you stand cursed. So Elisha, as the prophet, saw their hardened and rebellious condition, their unresponsive nature to correction, and he turns them over to the Lord and, his, and their own devices. You know, he may have said something like, may God deal with you according to what you deserve. That's a terrible statement to make to someone. Because if God dealt with me how I deserved, I perish. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ and salvation that I am not dealt with as I deserve. Or maybe he said, may you be cursed for your sins of rebellion. Needless to say, however this curse was heard and seen, it's demonstrating to this city... It's demonstrating to this people this vital truth. Without the Lord Jehovah, there is no protection. And that blasphemy against God's servants and his word are going to hinder or that want to hinder the message of, God's, of God is a serious business. In the name of the Lord, by his authority, Elisha simply turns them over to the Lord and their own devices, removing them from the common protection of God. And that's all he says. Note, Elisha does not call out the bears. Elisha does not say, and may bears come and maul you for being so belligerent to me. 
you know, may God somehow protect me from you and what is taking place here. What he does is he puts his hand on them and in this corrective measure says, you are totally wrong. For God is the one who is in charge here. And your rebellious nature against God needs to be corrected and brought up. His whole prophetic ministry is at jeopardy here. And so the taunt had to be dealt with decisively. And this sudden arrival of the two bears who maul 42 of the ewes, were there more? 42 seems to be enough. But it's an awful sentence on the unbelievers, but also on Jeroboam's cult city. It's a published reminder that blasphemy against the true God and his program is met with swift and certain consequences. And with these two miracles, Elisha's position as successor to Elijah as God's chief prophet is assured. He has a corrective ministry. Now it's a powerful ministry. It was a hurtful ministry. It was not one that anyone else would want to adjure. That's the message. It makes you mindful of what happens in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember in that moment at the early stages of the church being established that they lie to the Holy Spirit and they're struck dead. You know, swift and devastating consequences as this new direction is taking hold, God moved in decisively. It seems to be the same kind of thing here. This corrective moment. 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says this about the word of God. It says that God's word is God's word is God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the ministry of God's servants. To take the word of God and bring it to his people. Teaching, rebuking, correcting. Those can be hurtful moments. But here's Elisha demonstrating God's corrective ministry for the people of his day, establishing himself as God's, uh, God's servant in this moment. So these two great marks of ministry have been established for him, a restoring, a, res a restorative kind of ministry, and a corrective kind of ministry. And these are the marks of ministry that we want to desire. I trust you want to desire this as a church family. To cry out that, God, would you give us leaders that will be able to restore and to correct us. Now establish chapter 3, and it's a, a long section, which I knew we wouldn't be able to go through, but just, just a highlight in the midst of it. In chapter 3, what happens next is that the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom have joined together to do battle with Moab. Moab has rebelled against Israel, and they're together, and they're, they're going down to do battle. And they have to take this roundabout route to gain an advantage. And they take their armies through the desert. And it would seem after two or three days that they've miscalculated the journey, and they've run out of water for the troops, for the horses, for the camels. And they feel like they're going to perish there in the desert. And so they cry out. That brings us to 2 Kings 3.10. And that's kind of the context quickly. And, and what happens here is that the kings of Israel are... What? Verse 10. I'll start reading. Getting ahead of myself. What exclaimed the king of Israel? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah... 
He says, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, and otherwise his servant. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. See, there's the testimony that is now being shared with Elisha. The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Just an interesting little note, usually prophets are called to come up to see the kings. But the word of the Lord is with them. They say, no, we'll go to him. See, this is Elisha's status, has ridden to this place. That people are understanding that he is the voice of God. And they're going to him for direction. They're going to him for guidance. What's going to happen in the battle? And an interesting story unfolds that we won't get into. I like it because Elisha starts off by rebuking the king of Israel. Basically says he wouldn't give the time of day to him. You know, he's the king that's, that's letting Baal worship kill. He says, I, why would I talk to you? But Jehoshaphat, I'll talk to him. And he talks to him and he looks kindly at him and the Lord gives him this gracious word. And in a miraculous way, they defeat the armies of Moab. And water is provided. And it's through that water, which, read the story, it's an interesting thing that they, the Moabites see it as blood. And it's, it's so often through blood that God brings redemption to his people, isn't it? Think of Jesus. It's where our redemption is found. But all that story, why? Because the word of the Lord is with him. And he's recognized of having this directive, a redemptive kind of ministry that's brought into Israel once again. And so ministry that's restorative, corrective, and directive. I mean, this is the heart of ministry, and we see it coming out in Elisha. And would you be praying that over the next several weeks, as we make more specific steps now towards presenting this new pastor to us, oh God, grant this to us as a people that we would see your restorative power among us. We want to be your people. We want to be corrected where we need to be corrected. And God, we look forward to your direction, your redeeming work among us. Jason, you and the team, come on back up. Let's finish our service out by singing to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these powerful stories of your prophets of the Old Testament very different days than we walk in and yet lord so similar to the days we walk in we have a culture that's changing around us lord we need your direction we need to know how to minister in new ways but the same gospel the same gospel of hope that is found in jesus christ that is our light and our salvation but lord to a new people that live in our neighborhoods to a new way of thinking that is embracing so much of our culture. But Lord, you're the one who can direct us through all this. And we do cry out for leaders. We cry out for those who will stand strong among us. From a lead pastor, through elders, through deacons, through people who volunteer and serve. May we all understand these ministries that you bring to bear in our hearts and our lives. Thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.